Well, welcome. Grateful to be able to start off our Advent season t- together as a church family. And we had collaborated as to the, the theme of what we were going to be walking through in terms of Advent season. And the reason why it's a bit challenging for us every year is specifically because um, all of us have significant preconceived notions of what Advent is, right? We've done Christmas a lot before. And so, you know, you think about uniqueness, you think about, well, we could just move into reminders of the significance of Christmas. And there's just so much of this story that we don't want to grow stale. And I think sometimes our hearts um, and even our worship of Christ and the significance of Jesus' entrance into the world and this incarnation that we talk about can become so familiar that we lose sight of its potency. There's a, there's a movement if we allow the truth of what Christ has done to, to rest upon us. There's a, a movement towards this sense of awe and wonder as to this perfect plan of God that not only included the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, to come and take the form of a man, as Philippians tells us, but that it includes, and the purpose behind it was for us to be encountering the reality of God himself through not just God above us or God outside of us, but Emmanuel, God with us. And there's something so rich about that connection that as we thought about this Isaiah 9 passage and the light dawning, what we would really want for us to discover through the truth of God's word is that there would be this light switch, this reignition of our own hearts as we would understand the substance and significance of, of what that means over the next five weeks together. As we're walking through Advent and the, the reality of Christ's entrance into the world, what we're doing is, is turning our gaze away from the challenges that this world continues to want us to focus on and, and move our gaze to a more heavenly, more richer, more deep reality of the substance and significance of why not only Christ has come, but why Christ has still called us here. The, the world has not yet finished. He's not taken his church. He's not, a sta- he's not the, 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 we're still working through all of the chronology of God's perfect plan. And yet our emotions, if not often, tend to be centered around the immediate, the struggles and the challenges. And, and so this morning we're talking about worshiping the God of creation, the, the sense of what it means to understand who God is as he has created this universe and is operating with full authority that his entire character has been existent and fully uh, at work in every part of all of human history and throughout all of creation. That God isn't parsed out that we only see parts of him at, at specific times with the fullness of who he is. And so there's something that he has for us that draws us to a deeper reality of worship of him. And so we're going to look at two passages. I just want to set up the series with Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, it's not going to be up on the screen. If you have your phones, feel free to call it up. What I'd like you to do is just look at Isaiah 9. And one of the things that I want us to to really consider this morning, and really throughout the rest of the series, 
is darkness itself doesn't really exist by definition. Darkness itself is a definite, it, it, you define darkness by the absence of light. So the reason there's darkness is because light is absent, but it doesn't function in and of itself that, that once light appears, the darkness is gone. And so, so darkness is the absence of light. And so when you get these pictures in Isaiah chapter 9, you get a sense in which the world around them, and this is the nation of Israel and the challenges that they're facing, and, and their experience is one of gloom and darkness and difficulty and challenge. And so the appearance of light becomes this place of refreshment and joy and substance and significance and, and a, a sense of, of longing for something more than what they're experiencing here and now. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that, that not much has changed. I would mean, look at the canvas of our own lives and we would say that at least in part, there's something inside of us that longs for more than what we're experiencing in the here and now. We're familiar with brokenness. We're familiar with darkness. We're familiar with uncertainty and instability. And yet we worship a God on Sunday mornings and even throughout the week that gives us categories and communicates his character that says he has authority over all things, that he's working, that he's present in every reality, that he has power over all things and all of creation. And in the sense, we find ourselves wondering the discrepancy between our own experience and the truth of who God says he is. And so Advent forces us to move into that place of saying, I know God says these things about himself and even calls me to this experience and this relationship that far outweighs anything in this world. And yet on a consistent, regular basis, I'm pulled, my emotions are affected, my gaze and my desires and my longings seem to be regularly rooted in this world. So Advent exposes that discrepancy. Let me suggest to you this morning that Jesus didn't come to bring instant peace. I want to suggest to you that Jesus came to break us of illegitimate allegiances in preparation for the perfect peace that we will experience. There are things in our hearts and aspects of our attitudes and areas in which we are focused that are false in how we worship. We are allied or have allegiances in, in things that are above and beyond God. We find significance and substance in things in our life above and beyond the work and the powerful work of Christ. And so because of those things, we find ourselves torn between longings for things to happen in this world and hoping that God will allow us to meet or he will meet those deep desires of our heart. And yet one of the things that we fail to recognize, myself included, is that God is the source and in a relationship with him, he is the one that has met my deepest needs. And so we find comfort or significance or substance or something that we want from God. When in reality, what Advent tells us is that all we have and all we need 
is found in Christ. And everything else becomes that which Christ and God and the Holy Spirit are doing in and through us to move us to places of deeper dependency and reliance on the truth of who Christ is. So Advent exposes that discrepancy that our hearts are typically finding allegiances above and beyond a relationship with Christ alone. And so what we hope would happen through this series is that there would be that that light, that reignition, that, that joy that we would find, and we would say to ourselves that all of the things that we would hold on to, that we would want to be that which holds us and gives us significance would, would, be, would be laid before the reality of who Christ is. And all we would desire, all we would long for is more of Christ. So we'd move into every relationship with the, the power of Christ at work in us. We would move into every situation with the knowledge that Christ is in control and that, that God, the author of all of creation, has scripted things in such a way that in the 21st century, in 2021, you are alive, designed by God for such a moment as this. And so we find not just value in who we've been called to be, but we find that we are understanding that not only is God using us, but he's drawing us to himself. Advent calls us to a realization that God is cutting away things in our lives so that we are worshiping false things at times. We're longing and putting our hope in false hope and, and, and that doesn't mean that that's our identity, but it's, it's this shaping and redirecting ourselves to a reality of who our hope really is. And it was the same in, in the nation of Israel. So uh, Isaiah chapter 9, just want to read 1 through 7. And if you have your Bibles, I'd, I'd invite you to kind of just look along with me. But here's how it's set up by God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you and with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppression, oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here it is, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And here's the result of the appearance, the incarnation of this son. Here's the result of what happens when the light dawns. And what I want you to look at is every area of your life where you and I would choose to trust those things that rests solely on the authority of this incarnate Christ. It says the government will rest upon his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Man, what an awesome thing to even consider. Like if we read and reread that scripture through this Advent season, here's where I think the Lord would generate or reignite that passion for him and the work that he's done. We would realize that any authority that we see in this world has been given that authority by God himself. And there is not a place that anyone has more authority than God himself. God was not elected by a broken system, by broken men, and he has no term limits. God reigns. He has authority, and so he's working. And the, the government, all of those political entities, rests on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. That means that the truth of what God dispenses through the lenses of his word is not only wonderful, but the counsel is true and accurate. So as we dive into the truth of God's word, what we're expecting is that as the, the teachings of Christ and the truth of his word will generate a deeper understanding of his work in contrast to the wisdom of the world. We will find ourselves relying on what God says about himself and about the events of all of human history more than we will be directed and determined by those around us who were only given the authority by God himself. We trust God's word over the word of man. And he, his counsel is wonderful and good. He's mighty God. The power of all of the universe exists in God alone. Nothing else needs to have authority or power to direct our emotions save God himself. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. What a unique combination of words, right? A perpetual, eternal, always existent father who cares for his children. What a sense of relationship is generated in this reality of the fatherhood of God over our lives. This sense of tender, protective care that had no beginning and has no end. This is how the Bible describes the reality of Advent. And then Prince that which ushers in peace. <laughs> Man, if there's anything that this world and even ourselves need to be reminded of on a regular basis is the substance and the significance of the incarnation possesses the fullness of God's character. Like as he comes, those who were in darkness have seen a great light that, that it's pushed out those darkness that, that gloom and anguish and despair are not characteristic of God himself. But as we trust God, he pushes those things away based on his authority and his counsel and his care and the peace, the shalom that he offers his people. There's a joy to be had over this Advent season because that's their experience. 
He tells them that, that they will rejoice in, in such a regular basis and the oppression that they feel and the rod of, uh, of oppression will be broken that, that Jesus will assume authority over their lives and begin the process of doing a transformative work. So Advent itself is really about two things, preparation and change. <laughs> God is preparing us. He's doing something in us and he's changing us in the process. So when we worship the God of creation, what does that look like? And what I want to do is I want to draw for you the scope of the narrative of why understanding the God of creation is so significant. And I want to do it moving from backwards to forwards. So we're going to spend our time this morning, the rest of our time this morning, in Revelation chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, please move over there, and that's where we're going to camp out. And I would imagine that for many of us, even as as Laura was developing the, the children's message and, and writing these sheets for you guys to walk through, she says, what's your passage going to be this week? And I said, Revelation chapter 4. And some little birdies told me she, that she thought I was kidding. Because when you talk about creation, right, you, you move to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and all of those. And I think that there's significance in that. But Revelation 4, I think, is one of those places where we're able to get this sense of what this means and really what this looks like as history is moving and marching forward. See if I can explain it this way. My family and I, over Thanksgiving, uh, uh, had the joy of being able to go to San Antonio, and my sister and her foster son flew, flew down, and my dad drove up, and we spent some time in San Antonio. And there were two things that happened that were significant. Uh, on Wednesday, before we went to... Uh, before we had Thanksgiving, like we didn't have necessarily a Thanksgiving meal planned, we decided to go to Texas Day Brazil. <laughs> Man, you guys know about that stuff, right? Like there's, there's something that happens when you go to a place that decides to bring meat to you just as much as you want. And, and they, they come and they slice it for you and you pick, and you have this thing in your mind that says, I know that my body says I'm full but I'm going to get my money's worth, so I'm going to eat more. And so one of the things you want to do is that you don't want to bypass, you don't want to give all of your appetites to the things that aren't the meat. So you bypass the salad bar, or maybe you just give it a, a cursory glance and have a few pieces of lettuce until the meat comes around. And then they bring you potatoes. That I tell you what, that's their way of making more money off you because you fill yourself up with these starches when in reality you could just eat more meat. And so they have this little card, and this little card is green or red, right? Green, more meat. Red, I'm done, right? I submit. And you want to keep it green as long as absolutely possible. And so I tell you what, like, we filled up and just, like, we were not just full. We were full, full. And so what I want to do is we think about Revelation chapter 4, is the reality that as we understand the God of all creation, he's the only source that fully fills our appetites. Our lives are directed, our desires and our appetites so often are given to the things of this world. And what ends up happening, we're, we're hungry again. And yet the God of the universe, the source of living water, 
is the one that fills and satisfies fully and redirects our appetites to the things of God, not the things of this world. Second thing that happened over Thanksgiving is San Antonio has SeaWorld. Ridiculously expensive, but it has SeaWorld. And so they have all of these amazing shows. And these shows are awesome, right? You have these beluga whales that are doing all these performances and these dolphins that are jumping out of the water. But the, the coup d'etat of all of SeaWorld, right, is the, the killer whales. And I think they had like eight or nine of them. And they were all just splashing and dancing through the water and flying up in the air and doing all of these things that was just incredible. And this morning, I could, I could stand here and I could show you pictures of what we experienced in SeaWorld. And you'd be like, yeah, sounds like you had a good time. Great. But really, I cannot set for you the stage of what it felt like with the atmosphere of everyone cheering and sharing this encounter with these killer whales and, and the, the smells of the audience and the, the awes of uh, my little foster nephew who was just enamored by these things. Like, I can describe it to you, but the experience is something that unless you've been there, you can't really have. So I can give you pictures and portraits of those things, but I can't fully allow you to experience the experience that we had. That's the book of Revelation. <laughs> it's painting for you a picture of a promised experience. There is something that God is doing and has done and will do that he's preparing you for. And so what we do is we get, we get these snapshots, these glimpses of what it's going to look like. And, and our hearts are drawn and enamored. But really what it does is it roots us in real hope. Not some fantasyful thing that life is going to get better, but this reality of where everything is marching towards. And so Revelation 4 is going to give us a, a snapshot of the throne room of heaven. And my hope is what will happen is it will whet your appetite for more of God. The only one that can satisfy all of our desires the one, the only one that can shift our desires for him and him alone, the only one that is the supplier of all of our real needs, not our felt needs, but the real things that we need are found in Christ, in Christ alone. This throne room, this picture, this snapshot wets our palate for more of God. Revelation chapter four. Let me look at it. Let's look at it together. It will be up on the screen. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, says, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. It's giving us a sense of the future. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven... And one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. For the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and perils, 
uh, pails of thunder. And before the throne was burning seven torches of fire. And where are, uh, which are the seven spirits of God? And before the throne, there was, uh, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. And the third was uh, a living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature uh, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings full of eyes all around them and within. And here it is day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and power, honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. It's a picture, a snapshot, but look at the descriptions of what you get. You get the Father sitting on the throne. So Revelation 4 is about worship of God the Father. Revelation chapter 5 is about worship of God the Eternal Son. So the focus is the Father sitting on the throne, and, and here are the aspects of what you get surrounding this throne. It's absolutely indescribable, but John does his best. So there's an appearance, and around the throne, you have this rainbow that looked like an emerald. What is that about? When do you think, and how do you think the Bible describes, and why is the rainbow significant? Right, it jumps you back to Noah and a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Surrounding the throne where the Father sits is surrounded by this picture of a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, this visual image of a God that guarantees his promises with himself. That it's surrounding that throne are legitimately the reality of God's mercy and promise to take care of his people. The character of God runs tried and true that what we're looking for and looking to is this reality that God is guaranteeing that all of these things are going to take place. There's a promise that is embedded within the throne room of heaven that what we get a chance to look at and what John sees as he's moved into the spirit is that you have a reliable God that will not let you down. Amen. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Like what we're given is this ignition and this passion and this reality that we can trust what God says. And then you get this, these, these 24 thrones and these 24 elders. And there's, there's some debate about these things. But what I want us to focus on is in the reality is, is what happens to them. What, what are they doing? So it's, it's surrounded by a, what he says, a sea of glass. Like this sense in which the only way that he can describe what surrounds the throne is this water-like image that has zero 
imperfections. Zero imperfections. There's no ripples. There's no marks. It's like crystal. The promise and the perfection of God are aspects of what his character shows to be true as he's carrying us through in preparation for that day. And you have all of these mighty creatures and these 24 elders. And what are they doing? Worshiping. One of the four most powerful creatures that exist in all of creation, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle in flight. And there's again all of this imagery that certain scholars have spent their entire lifetime figuring out what John is exactly talking about but the most powerful creatures on earth are submitting to the only one who has the only true power. Like that, that's the essence of what he's moving us towards is this sense that even them seeing all things, have all of these eyes and they have all of these wings and these creatures are majestic. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. Who are they worshiping? What, what are they describing that draws them to worship? So you get these creatures, and, and here's how he describes them worshiping. Around the throne on each side, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, second living creature like an ox, third living creature the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes around them, day and night perpetually and eternally, forever. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The reason that they're drawn to worship, the Father on his throne, surrounded by the promises, surrounded by his perfection, what are they saying? They're saying, God, you are mighty. You have all power and all authority, and you have never been created. You have existed and always existed. You were, you are, and you always will be. This reliability of what we treasure in our hearts are not fleeting things of this world. What we trust is the reliability and the certainty of the character and the nature of God himself. He is and always will be more than enough for us. That that our hearts and our affections can be drawn so consistently to other things, and yet Advent desires to reroot us, to reshift our gaze to the God and the only one worthy of all of our affections. And so here he goes now. One of my favorite parts of this verse, the 24 elders, it says in verse 10, fall down before him. This sense of worship. They were seated, fell down before him and worshiped him who lives forever. And they, look at this, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why is he worthy? According to the elders, created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. God's character resounds through the ages and results in praise. God's character resounds 
through the ages and results in praise. So you have these elders, and at least in, in very small ways, they've been crowned already. So they've received their reward. They're sitting on these thrones. There's some level of significance. And every place of significance that they've been given is paling in comparison to their ability to cast it all before the throne of God and worship. At that moment, what does your mind and heart go to? The reality, I think, for them is the only thing significant in the center of all of history and all of creation is God himself. That nothing has more value than God. And he is worthy of all praise. And so what we get is that Jesus secures for us this future and places creation in its proper place. What, what, what place does creation have in their worship of God the Father? That it's a reason. It's one of the reasons to praise him. That what we get is this sense that all of the things that have been created from the beginning until the end of time are aspects of God's character that are communicating his love and compassion and care for his people and for the world at large. Romans 8 tells us, right, that, that all creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth until now. So the appearance of the son gives us a sense that he secures for us a future and places creation in its proper place. One of many reasons to worship God. Everything revolves around God. So creation in its proper place is a reason to worship God. So that means the, the feelings that we have, the challenges that we face, the difficulty of what surrounds us. Remember Isaiah 9, the government rests on his shoulders. All of the uncertainty in this world, at the very least, is a reason to praise God. How? I mean, that sounds a little bit ridiculous if you ask me. How is all of the uncertainty and instability in this world a reason to praise God? Because you know and I know that this world is not worthy of our affections. This world is not our home. We don't desire things to be perfect in this world because we know that Christ has already secured for us a perfect place. And it's not here. I don't want to stay here forever. Just FYI. Like, I want to be in this place that has been secured for me by Christ himself. This sense that I'm just enveloped with the promises of God, that I'm, I'm, I'm the object of my affections in this life are realized in my intimacy with God in heaven. <coughs> I can't wait for that day. Like, I don't want to be so comfortable in this world that I have no longing for heaven that I have no desire for that intimacy and that relationship to be realized. I don't just want the snapshots. I want the real thing. And as I long for the real thing, what I find is that the God of all creation is pointing me to that very reality, that he's moving us and all of creation to that end. Now, I will say every generation has thought that it would be their generation that Jesus would take his church home. And I'm the same. I hope it's our generation 
Like, I mean, would it be a great reality that God takes his church and the, the end times begin and all of these things and the fullness of God's character begin to be realized as he continues to march history to that end? Oh, Lord, please hasten the day. Until then, what do we do? I'd like to suggest to you that not only is the throne surrounded by the mightiest uh, uh, of early creatures and they recognize the source of all strength, but I think what God is doing is that the only way that we can make sense of anything that we have in light of the reality in which we live is that everything we have is not something that we've earned but been given. That everything that exists in our life has been given to us by God himself. Most of us are like, okay, seems reasonable. But now let's march out the sense in which how frequently our hearts are likely drawn to worshiping the creation over and above the creator. How would we know if we see everything we have as a gift? Let me walk you through three potential options of how we would identify where we maybe worship the things of this world. Does your heart grow in fear of losing what you have? Is there ever any sense in your life and my life that we hold on so tightly to the things that we've been given that if we lose those things, everything that we think about God would be called into suspicion. That we would wonder if God's character is what it says it is in the scriptures if we lose the things that we're holding onto. Is there any sense that fear is a part of our lives and even our aspect of worship where we or myself worship God because of what I have, but if I lose those things, my worship of God is diminished. That's a place where when we're talking about the light has done, God is growing us to realize that what we want often in our hearts is the gift, not the giver. And Advent tells us that the gift is only to direct us to intimacy with the giver. Or is there any part of our life where we feel like we just never have enough. There's always something more that we're striving for, and it's really hard for us to feel satisfied in the things that we've been given. Sure, it's a place where God is growing us and realizing that our worship is the sense and based on what we've been given and how we feel about those things. And then finally, I think often our worship is based on comparison get angry that others have and we don't. Now, we're in good company. The entire book of Habakkuk is about that question. Psalm 73 is about that question. How can good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good, right? We live in this world where things just don't make sense. And of course they don't make sense because this isn't the end. It all makes sense when Christ finishes all of human history and all of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ find themselves fully worshiping him. So what do we do? Right? I wrestled with practical applications for this text because certainly there's hundreds of them, not the least of which just see the vastness and the bigness of God and just 
fall on your face like the elders and just worship God who has given you more than you can ever imagine. That the greatest gift of all of human history is, is a relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf and what he continues to do. But I think there's more. I think worshiping the God of creation moves us to a place where we realize how fragile this world is and how God is preparing us for the next. So here, two words that I want to embed in your heart and mind over this entire Advent season. Ready? Live ready. Live ready. Live as though your life is a a gift from God. Every breath you breathe, every beat of your heart is God reminding you that the very life you have and the very breath you breathe is given to you by the God of the universe. Every moment you spend on this earth, every instant that you experience and that I experience in this world, every relationship that comes your way, every person that you meet, every moment of your life has been given to you as a gift. And so in the process of those things, we look to the perfect creator of the universe and move our lives to the realization that the substance of our life is found in God, not in this world. I don't need approval from man because I've been given approval by God. I'm his his kid. So what I'm motivated by then is just moving towards however I can honor Christ in this short life. And in the process, be prepared for the life that God has called me to live eternally with him forever. I want that day. I want to want more of that day. Live ready. I'll finish with this. 20 some odd years ago, uh, Aaron and I were in preparation to get married. The process took about nine months of planning and prep. April 24th, 1999 was the day that we had set. And I was preparing my heart for that day. It was was a good day. I was looking forward to that day for numerous reasons. Just the thought of being able to unite my life with this woman that I had fallen in love with and that had fallen in love with me. I know you're as shocked as I am, but it happened. So get over it. She's connected with me. Nothing you can do about it. Um, but in the process of those things, there's this, this preparation that took place. And it was so funny as I was thinking about the preparation, like she was the detail one. I know that's surprising to you, but you know, ordering invitations and planning where we were, the venue and, and talking to the pastor that was going to marry us and, and having all of these conversations and going through premarital counseling, all of the preparation and, and, Back then, I had hair. So the day before, right, I scheduled my haircut. I couldn't wait to tell everybody that was cutting my hair that I was getting married the next day. And I, funny story, I, you know those bars, bar, whatever they are, these strips you put over your nose to pull off all the hair and the blackheads? Like, I, I used a whole box of those because I wanted to be all shiny for the day. You know what I mean? I shaved. And like I was, I was put on deodorant, so I smelled good. Like, everything that, <laughs> shocking, right? Everything I was doing to get ready for that day, and, and I, my whole life was focused on making sure that I was the best man that I could be on that day. 
We wrote our own vows. I spent time thinking about the things that I wanted to tell her about my love for her and the promises that I was going to make to her. Preparing for that day. The unique part is that I knew the day. I knew when it was coming. I was planning for April 24th, 1999. Here's the challenge that we face. We have a wedding banquet that's going to be happening. Revelation 19, which I'll be preaching on at the end of this series. God has prepared for us that banquet. Now, I will tell you, Erin was center stage that day of our wedding. (laughs) She was perfect. White dress, absolutely magnificently beautiful walking. She was the centerpiece of that wedding day, legitimately so. That wedding feast, the groom will be centerpiece. Our focus will be on him. The problem is, is that we don't know the day. (laughs) But the preparation is still critical. Let me suggest to you that as we live ready, every moment of every day, of every encounter, with every person, in everything that we deal with, it is all part of the preparation for the day we meet the groom. So live ready. Allow our lives to be focused and worship the God of creation as authority over all things and is moving us towards himself. So every hurt, every hangup, every challenge, every difficulty, preparation. And so when we face those things, what are we asking? Here's what we're asking. God, how are you changing me? Not that person is a real dirtbag, even though they might be. The point is, is to say, God, you're using that person to prepare me for eternity. Change my heart that I may see you more clearly in the midst of every challenge, every struggle, and every joy. Live ready. I can't wait till I'm going to meet the groom on that day. Let's pray.